How we doing tonight, friends and family? Come on, you got a little bit more energy and you've got a little, little left at chapel. How we doing tonight, friends and family? Come on. Hey, Ecclesiastes chapter one is where we're gonna be camping out tonight. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like one, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, and some of our friends in the back are gonna be passing some of those out. There's, they're gonna be the verses on the screen, at least most of them. And so if you'd rather do that, that is fine as well. Uh, however, I always love having my Bible in my lap following along so I know that what the guy is saying is actually in the book. And so again, if you have a Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter one, we're going verse one all the way uh, through the end of the chapter. And then we're gonna go uh, back to our cabins and and mess around, not mess around a little bit. I'm over here breaking the rule. We're not messing around at all. We're gonna have some fun though. Uh, and while you are getting there, again, Ecclesiastes chapter one, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, it goes, uh, let's see, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, pretty much dead setter in the middle of the book. So again, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, starting in verse one. As you're finding your way there, uh, man, we are at Hume Lake Winter Camp, y'all. Uh, anybody, anybody Office fans in here? Like you've seen op The Office. Uh, I'll never watch it again. It was so good. It like broke me down when it, when it ended. Uh, but I am haunted by the quote that I think Andy says. Uh, he says, I wish there was a way that you could uh, know that you were in the good old days before you left them. Uh, and so I just want to pause for a moment and say, hey, like pause. Think about it. You're here. Uh, let's, let's press in. Uh, my name is JD. My name's actually Joseph. Delgado, but my friends call me JD, and so uh, feel free to. Uh, I come all the way from California on the other side of the country. Anybody California in here? You know what it's like? I'm from Bakersfield. Any Bakersfield people in here? It's kind of like California, but not really, and so I'm from California, Bakersfield. Uh, a couple things about myself while you find your way there. Uh, except my name is JD. I've been in ministry for uh, about six or seven years doing high school and junior high ministry, and I absolutely love it. Uh, I have conversations with people all the time. There's nothing like being tired for the Lord. And so that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to this weekend. And I'm sure some of your counselors and pastors are as well. A couple other things about myself. Uh, I am married. I think we have a picture of my wife over here. Uh, this is my wife, Bree. Been married now for four years. She is easily, and I'm not just saying this because uh, she's my wife, but she's easily the uh, most brilliant human being that I have ever met. Uh, and so she got married to me. Now, I, you know, I tricked her. She can't leave. And so that's her. We've been married now for four years. And these are our two children. Anybody dog parents in here? You know what it's like, man. There's like something just unlocked in your heart. You're like, okay, I love animals. Anybody, any golden, golden retriever owners? Yeah, okay. They're, they have the energy, but they're worth it at the end of the day. And so if you look, the one that my wife is holding, that is uh, actually, yeah, the one that my wife told, that one's Enzo. Uh, she named him after the book, The Art of Racing in the Rain, if you're familiar with that book. The one that I am holding, his name is Boston. Can I tell you why? Uh, I am the only person in the 661 area code from California that is a Boston sports fan. I love the New England Patriots. And anytime, I'm, hey, anytime I get on stage in California, I say that and I get booed. And so I know that while I'm here, that's not the case. Tom Brady's the go. I don't care what Patrick Mahomes does this weekend. Come on, somebody. In Jesus' name, it's true. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to me about it later. So this is Boston. I'm a Patriots fan. And two more things about me. Then we're going to jump into the Word of God and stop focusing on me. Uh, I, this is, well... 
I'm a Christian. Uh, I love God. I know that uh, maybe if you're familiar with the church setting, people uh, that are up on stage or maybe your pastors, like people who say this, and I believe that it's true, uh, but it, it is also true. I know it's cliche. Uh, I love the Lord, uh, and I know that it is only in response to the great love in which he has shown for me, but I can say confidently that I would not be the person that I am today standing on the stage had it not been for him that saved me. Uh, I, you're going to hear a little of my story this weekend, but uh, I come from a family and from a story of brokenness and pain, uh, homelessness and drugs and alcohol and, and, and gangs and all of those things. Uh, and God set me free from those and put me on a path of life and righteousness. And so uh, I'm thankful for the Lord. I'm a Christian. I love God. Uh, and then the last thing, I love God's word. I love God's word for several reasons. Uh, one of them being because like it, it is just an amazing collection of accounts of what God has done throughout history. Uh, so I'm currently watching, re-watching the X-Files on Hulu for whatever reason, the ones from like 1990, whatever. And they're like some fun stories, but there is nothing like getting in this book and reading about the exciting things that God has decided to do in human history. Like if you're bored with the Bible, like read Judges, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I love the Bible for that reason, but I also love the Bible for this reason. Once you make a pattern of reading this book, of getting in this thing and really trying to understand it, there is something that happens in your life where the Lord will just like, like cause you to remember things that you read and then in some weird way that only he knows how, connects them in ways in your life that really opens your eyes to these like amazing, awesome, coincidental, supernatural things that happen all the time. It's incredible. I'll give you an example and then we'll move on. And I'm saying that a lot. Uh, an example, last year, and I'm not being dramatic about this, last year was the hardest year of my life. Uh, and it was not close. Uh, I had a tough life. Last year was the hardest year of my life. Uh, my mom passed away in January of last year, and it was uh, the most traumatic thing I've ever been through. She passed at the young old age of 60 uh, in, a, in an awful way. Uh, and I remember during that season of my life, hearing that news, uh, I went a few days without reading this book. Uh, and it was just because uh, if you've lost your mom, or if you've lost somebody that's like really near and dear to your heart, you know that for a, for a while, you just can't really think. You know what I mean? Like you don't really know that you exist. You don't know what day it is. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And so I kind of like, like back pocketed reading scripture for about two days. And then when the time came for me to sit with my Bible at my dining room table, like I do every morning, I opened the book and in my regular scheduled reading plan, I opened the book up and guess what was next? The book of Ecclesiastes. And so I opened this book and the first thing that I did was close it. Because if, you're a, if, you know, if, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that there are typically three books that Christians try to avoid, right? Leviticus, because there's some weird things that happen with goats. Revelation, because there's some weird things that happen with dragons. And Ecclesiastes, because it's widely known to be one of the more depressing books in scripture. And so I thought, Lord, there's no way. <laughs> like, I'm gonna go find a psalm or a gospel and I'll read that because I feel like, like in my own wisdom, that's gonna be the thing that I need. And so I went the day, closed the book, went the day, prayed, and I was like, Lord, I'm not gonna do it. And then towards the end of that day, begrudgingly, I sat down at my dining room table, I opened the book and I said, okay, God, but I'm praying for two things. Would you do two things for me as I spend time studying this book during this season of my life, the first one would be this. Would you change me in such a way that I could not do by myself? Would you speak to me in a powerful way that would really meet me in the space that I need to not just move on from what I'm going through, but to help me process and change me as I do so? And the second one is this. Lord, would you in some way, shape, or form use what I learn in this book during this season of my life to help someone else in the future? Two months ago, the director of Hume Lake 
texted me and said, hey, we'd love to have you over here in New England. We're teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so here's, here's the deal, my friends. I tell you this for this reason. Like, I am not a person that just believes that God exists because it's the cool thing to do or I grew up in church. I've seen God move in powerful ways and things like this happen more often than you'd like to think. And again, this is my plea from the stage tonight. Would you lean in? For those of you that are tired and, and restless and weary and bored and feeling this sense of what we're gonna talk about tonight, meaninglessness, would you lean in and see that if God is real and he does exist, if he has something to share with you, I wanna invite you to just, if you feel comfortable, just kind of keep your hands open like this with me as we pray as a sign of surrender and saying, God, we're open, have your way. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, thank you so much that you've opened up this space for us to consider your word. God, I pray that as we do so, you would really, really, really just speak to us in that real way. God, we don't wanna pretend. We're not here to play games. Life is too short. Life is too challenging. Father, would the, the soil of our hearts be good as the word is planted, Lord? Would the, would the bird not come? Would the devil not come and steal it? Would the, would the cares of this world and the worries of this world not quench it away? Father, but would it produce fruit in our lives? Help us to worship you now with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, look to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. Look to him and say, I'm ready. Come on. Mm. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so the question that I found myself asking during this time of my life, the question that I found myself asking as I approached this book was, God, is there really life after death? Uh, is there really life after death? Because now I don't know about you, but like I believe this. I've preached this for the longest time. I've gone on stages all over the place and I've preached that there is life after death, that God has purchased that for us, that when we die, like our first, our last breath here is our first breath there. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so I believe these things and I've preached these things. Now, I don't know about you, but there is something about when life happens. And I'm not just talking about like, like you didn't get the grade that you wanted or she said no when you asked her out. I'm talking like, like real life. Like when they get the diagnosis, when they pass, when you find out they're no longer together, like when real life takes place, it's, it's almost as if life forces you to confront this. Like, hey, do I actually believe the things that I say that I do? Do I actually believe the things that I say that I do? And so I approached this book and said, God, would you convince me again? Like if there is doubt in my heart, show me. Like, is there really life after death? And so that's how I approached this book. And in, in God's wisdom and his kindness, instead of answering that question, he proposed another one. Is there really life before? Is there really life before death? What do I mean by that? Does what we do and who we are in of themselves have meaning and purpose. In essence, and in short, does all of this matter? Does all of this matter? How we choose to spend our time, how we fill our calendars, how we empty our bank accounts. Do like all of these activities and events in of themselves make life worth living? When we know that at the end of the day, like, like the, the, the great equalizer, the destination for all people, death will eventually visit your doorstep and rob you of everything that you have worked so hard and will work so hard to achieve, collect, and do, and eventually rob the entire world, doesn't matter who they are, of your remembrance. Does this matter? Is there meaning and purpose in life? This is the terrifying question that I think in some form or fashion lives within every human being. 
And this is the subject that haunts the author of Ecclesiastes. Look with me at verse one. The Bible says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Let's pause there. Verse one tells us that this was Solomon, king in Jerusalem, son of King David, the wealthiest and wisest man to ever exist. I'm gonna quote some verses here and there. Feel free to write them down. They won't be on the screen. But again, fact check me if you'd like. Second Chronicles chapter nine, starting in verse two, gives us an insight into the money that King Solomon would have had says that he was given 500,000 pounds of gold annually. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to have somebody just like hand me over, credit my account, 500,000 pounds of gold annually. Now, we've had so many different commentators and scholars try and take that amount of money and then put it into today's context, considering taxes and all of those things. And this is kind of, it seems like it's the consensus of what Solomon would be worth today. On the low end, two trillion dollars on the high end, probably more like $14 trillion. For context, the three highest uh, grossing companies uh, in the world on the planet, you'd probably be able to guess them, Microsoft, Apple, and Google, they make combined $1 trillion a year. And so Solomon times that by two. Here's the point that I'm trying to get at. Solomon's rich. He's very wealthy. Back in California, if you watch the NFL, we say he got the bag. You know what I'm talking about? Like he's rich, rich. He probably owns a Tesla truck and owns a Stanley as well. Like th this is who Solomon is. He's wealthy. Anybody here got a Stanley cup? Those things are weapons, y'all, for real. Like, be careful. So he's, he's wealthy, but on top of that, he has many, many, many relationships. So let's see, I think it's 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3 says that he has about 700, he had about 700 wives and 300 concubines. JD, what is that? Uh, they were considered less than a wife. However, they still had close relationship with Solomon. And so combined, Solomon has about 1,000 women relationships. Now, I don't know if I have any husbands in the room, but like it's hard enough for me to just make my, to try and get my one wife happy by just like sweeping the floor and taking out the trash. You know what I mean? Like Solomon's got his hands full. He's trying to keep all of these women happy. He's got a thousand women relationships. And then lastly, what we're going to focus on tonight, his achievements. So he did plenty of great things. He built large buildings. He planted beautiful gardens and he assembled powerful armies. He never had a desire unmet. He was never told, yeah, like, have you heard this before? We'll go next year. He was never told, yo, like, put that on the Christmas list. Maybe someone will get it for you in December. He was never told, hey, let's not go to Target. Instead, we got to go to, come on, somebody, Walmart. He was never told, we got McDonald's at home, but McDonald's at home is a mid-ham sandwich. Solomon could do anything that he wanted to. His desires were always met. He was easily the person in the best position in life to indulge and enjoy and pursue. And what he does is he, he, he combines his experiences and then he puts them down in this book. His audience consisted of people from all walks of life, wealthy and poor, young and old, because it would resonate with everyone and even across all time to those even sitting here tonight. And this is what he says after years upon years upon years of trying to see if these things in of themselves would fill him and give life meaning. Turn with me to verse two. It says this. Vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, 
says the preacher, all is vanity. What does that word mean? Some of your translations may say meaningless or futile. Vanity, says the preacher. This word is used nearly 40 times in Ecclesiastes and sets like the overarching tone or the overarching theme of the book. Uh, and this, mean, li- this, this word literally translated means hebel, which in Hebrew means a vapor, a smoke, or a breath. And so I don't know if you've gone outside today and you've been walking around and you're just kind of breathing, but I want you to think about this as you leave today. Just take like a deep breath and then blow out whatever comes out of your mouth, oxygen, whatever that might be, and just see like the air. And then the cool thing, like what he's trying to reference here, the point that he's trying to make is that the moment that it's there, you can see it. It's, it's clear, like it's the clear as day, like it exists. And yet if you tried to grab it or if you spent any, any given amount of time, more than like a second or two, just, just looking at it, it's gone in a moment. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And so by using this word, Solomon is saying that life lived under the sun. It's kind of the theme that we have for this weekend. Life lived under the sun. In verse three, we're gonna mention this, where you believe that all that you can, all all about life, like everything in life where you can see, feel, smell, touch, like that's all that there is. And there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing beyond to bring it more meaning is like a quickly fading breath that has no substance. It is elusive. It is hollow. It is vanity. And so think with me for a moment. Those times in your own life, where you've had those like, hey, I've made it moments. Like I've made it in life moments. Now I know many of you aren't like, like getting up there in age, but we've all had these. Like you've spent a lot of time, maybe a significant amount of time actually thinking about those things that you think would, hey, like bring that meaning and purpose. So for you, maybe it's like, yo, I cannot wait to get that car. Like I'm gonna save up as much money as I can and I'm gonna get that car and it's gonna make my life so much better. I'm gonna be able to take my date to prom. Like I really wanna get this car. And then you get that car. For you, maybe it's like that relationship where you've been thinking about that girl or that dude forever, and then they finally say yes, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Maybe for some of you, it's a grade. You've been working so hard to get that SAT grade going, and you do, and it's awesome. Like, whatever that thing is that you think is going to, like, give your life some kind of value or meaning, think, think for a moment. The moment that it happened, maybe it felt great for a second, but it never lasted as long as you thought it would or hoped it could. It never does that feeling of lasting fulfillment. And so Solomon in saying these things, he's not trying to get us to have some kind of emotional response that will cause us to make a decision that won't last the car ride home. He's inviting us again to think logically. There has to be more to life than this. A consistent letdown of emotion, of things that never actually produce what they promise. There has to be more to life than this. In the rest of the chapter, he's gonna walk us through the things that we typically do to occupy our lives, hoping they'll somehow bring us meaning. Look with me at verse three. He says, what does man gain by all the toil? That word toil means work. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That word gain used here in the original language contains this idea of what is left over. Like, 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 what is it that I could actually take with me beyond this life that will last? I don't know about you, but I've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul. He's saying like, yo, you can, you can earn like a fat paycheck. 
You, you, can, you can spend your life trying to collect certain things like phones or cars or clothes, whatever that thing might be that you are so jazzed about having at some point. He's saying you can invest everything in your life in collecting and working and doing those things. And, and the interesting thing that I learned years ago that, that never left my brain, the things that you have, my friends, that you work so hard for will eventually end up in two places, either in the trash because the new model comes out or sold at a yard sale probably following your funeral. And so, so meaning and purpose, the thing that brings your life value cannot be found in working hard and collecting things because in the end of the day, you will have nothing to show for it. It'll be owned by someone else or in the trash. Look with me at verse, look with me at verse four. He moves on and he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. People are easily forgotten. People are easily forgotten. The majority of this pe the people in this room, and I'm not saying everyone, I'm saying 99.9% .9 of the people in this room. If I asked you this question, you would not be able to answer it. If I were to say, hey, what is the name of your great, great, great grandmother? Again, 99% of us would say, I have no idea. You wouldn't be able to tell me what she looked like, what her name was, what her hair color was, what she did for work, what she owned, nothing. And the only thing that you probably have like some kind of idea of who she is, is like a picture hanging up in your grandparents' wall. But you still have no idea who that person is. For many of you in this room, you've had this conversation. Like I'd sit down with seniors and, and, and junior hires all the time and this typically comes up around like May towards the end of the year where they'll say things like, man, this school, they're really gonna miss us. Anybody in here? Wow, I can't like, I have no idea what they're gonna do without me. You know, them eighth, you've seen them seventh graders? Like dude, when we're gone, this thing's going down the trash. You know what the interesting thing is? The seniors that were there before you said the same thing about you and you haven't thought about them since they left. See, here's the thing. The, re like the moment that we start thinking that we are somehow the exception, we realize that everyone that has come before us has felt the exact same way. A generation comes and a generation goes. It's just the cycle of life. I heard this a couple weeks ago and it, it, it sucked. I'll be honest with you, it stung because it's true. There is coming a generation quickly that won't miss you. And it's not because they don't want to try and they're not trying, it's because they just won't know you. There is coming a generation quickly that won't miss you. He moves on, verse five through eight. Oh, this is my favorite part of this sermon. So if you're, if you're not tuned in right now, I'm just praying you lean in. Five through eight, Solomon goes on. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens. If you write in your Bible, go ahead and circle that or highlight it. We'll come back to it. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So Solomon is, is using this as an illustration and saying that all of creation is filled with like repetition and cycles that never really uh, seemingly accomplish what they set out to do. The sun never rests. 
The wind never arrives. The sea is never full. Now, I love the Bible because they use these words. The authors will use these words intentionally to paint pictures in our minds so we can like, like think about or, or see in our minds what they're trying to say. So go with me back to verse five. If you have an English Standard Version Bible, that word hastens should have a number over it. Does anybody have an English Standard Version Bible and have that? So if you look at the number uh, and you, you follow that number down to the bottom where the textual notes are, where the editors will try and give you an insight into what it means, uh, it'll give you a literal translation of that word. Does anybody know what that says? Can you follow it for me? Can anybody find it before I just tell you? I'll give you five seconds. Three, two, you got it? Returns panting. Now I want to read that for you in the literal translation, and then I'll tell you what he's trying to get at here. Verse five, he says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and returns panting to the place where it rises. Here's what Solomon is trying to say. Humanity, just like all of creation, watch me, is just tired without ever really accomplishing the things that they seemingly set out to do. I wonder tonight, is that you? Just tired? Like tired, tired? Like you, you sleep, but you don't ever really feel rested? Maybe you meditate on the Calm app and you never really ever feel at peace. Like you've been, you've been taking in oxygen for a while, but it doesn't ever really feel like you can breathe. Just tired. Here's what he's trying to say. You will never, sorry, you will forever be tired in your soul like the sun. You will never have direction in your life like the wind, and you will never see or hear clearly like the man. You will never be full like the sea. If the motivation behind what you do, what you stake your life on and how you live is just, hey, like, let's just try the best that we can to do the best that we can and enjoy what we can with no regard for God with this under the sun perspective. For some of you, you're like, that's actually not true. Well, I would just ask you, like, how is that going out for you? Like, how are you feeling with that? Verse nine, he moves on. Through 11, he says, what has been is what will be and what will be done. Sorry, and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Friends, in the deepest part of our hearts, if we're just honest, we want to be remembered. We want our work to mean something. We want our experiences and our pleasures to last. And so what do we do? We build statues. We write biographies. We, we dedicate parks. Anybody seen any of those? The parks that are like inscribed with names on them. You're like, who's that person? Signs, we inscribe signs. We, we put our names on pieces of concrete and then line them in amusement parks because there's plenty of people that walk by, all in an effort to try and preserve life. And yet, eventually, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that at some point in time, the park will be renovated, the statues will rust, the benches will be replaced, the concrete will crack. If life is lived under the sun with no faith or belief in something higher that brings deeper meaning, then quite frankly, time and the cycle of life forces us to confront the reality that friends, we are not as important as we think we are. And honestly, the things that we do honestly don't really matter all that much either. 
This is the most eerie feeling I've ever had in my life. Um, for those of you that have experienced this, I am sorry, uh, but it's just the most weird moment that I've ever had. Uh, I remember the, mo- the morning after my mom passed, I got in my wife's car and we were kind of driving around because we had to take care of some things. And um, I don't know how to explain it. It was so weird that the sun still rose. Like, it was so weird that the birds still flew in the same pattern that they did the day before. It was, it was like odd to me that the neighbor still walked her dog and the line at Starbucks was still long. It was as, it was as if all of creation just refused to pause and mourn my loss. And here's the reality. If I did not have a faith in God that made my life make sense and bring it meaning and purpose, then the only empty explanation would be, hey, this is just the cycle. It's just the cycle. Solomon then goes on to explore one more avenue of this chapter he had hoped would fill this void and make sense of life. Look at me at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. You don't have to, I'll just read it for you. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, if you'd like to write it down. God goes on to tell Solomon, I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be, ever in the past. And so Solomon would become the most brilliant human being to ever walk the earth. He would be smarter than Isaac Newton. He would have deeper understanding than Einstein. And he could contemplate the minute realities of the universe better than Hawking. And so in chapter one, he tells us how even wisdom, intelligence, and knowledge have failed him in his search for meaning and purpose. Look at verse 12 all the way through 18. We're going to finish the chapter. He says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem and I applied my heart. That heart means the entirety of the person, everything, heart, soul, mind, strength. I applied everything that I was to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity, all is hebel, all is a striving after the wind. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. I'm intelligent, I'm smart, I'm wise. I've surpassed all those who were over Jerusalem before me, all of the kings, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart, again, the wholeness of my person to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. Vexation is like a strong frustration. He says, for in much wisdom, I'm just frustrated, And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So Solomon, he quickly realizes that possessing all of the earthly wisdom in the world only leads him to understand that everything that we preoccupy our time with falls into three categories. Number one, it's just an unhappy busyness. Number two is like something crooked that can't be straightened or something impossible to count. And then number three is no different if we choose to live irresponsibly or with maturity. Anybody in here have hamsters before? Anybody here hamster people? Yeah. 
You're my kind of people. Um, I used to have hamsters growing up. They were my favorite animal ever. It's the reason why I have golden retrievers now, because they kind of smell the same. That's weird, but it's true. And so I loved hamsters growing up. My mom and my dad, they would like, they would buy me hamsters as a kid. I was like four years old, and they were like, take care of it. I'm like, that is the dumbest thing ever, but okay. And so I'm like, I remember being a kid and just like being at home alone with a hamster trying to figure out how to care for it. And so if you love animals, please don't come at me. I love animals too. But I like accidentally unalived, like more hamsters than I can think of. Like one I accidentally like sat on, the other one I accidentally let out. There was one that was like let underneath the tub and then one I accidentally put on the heater and you can kind of put two and two together. And so, and so like I was this kind of person with hamsters. Don't come at me, right? But I remember being like four or five years old, y'all, and having this thought. I remember being like four or five years old and I remember stooping low and just looking in the cage. And what, was, what would the hamster do? Spin on the wheel. And I just remember getting in there and he would go and he'd eat and he'd drink water and he'd get back on the wheel. He'd go and he'd eat, drink water, get back on the wheel. Go eat, drink, get back on the wheel. And I remember just sitting there watching him thinking, does he actually think that he's doing something? Like all he's, all he's doing is making himself tired. And then what is he gonna do? He's gonna go, he's gonna sleep, he's gonna eat, he's gonna drink water, he's gonna get back on the wheel. That is life lived under the sun. That is life lived under the sun. The unhappy busyness that Solomon discovered is the, the proverbial hamster wheel that we sprint on thinking, watch me, that we're getting ahead in life only to reach the end of our lives having busied ourselves maybe with good things yet never really accomplishing anything because it won't last. The things that can't be straightened and the things that are impossible to count it's teaching us that there is something that is fundamentally wrong with life lived under the sun. And hear me, you can do nothing about it. And that third thing, he decided to live with immaturity and folly and, 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 and stupidity in some sense. And he, even in that, did not find meaning and purpose. It was not found there. In the end, his conclusion was, hey, the wiser that you are, the more worries you have, the more that you know, the more it hurts. And he realized that no matter how you try to make sense of it, if you believe that we are just like a random collection of particles that are sitting on some kind of rock that we call earth, floating through like a vast galaxy that we call space, then the emptiness of the universe screams, no, there is no point. There's nothing. There's no life. There's no meaning. There is no purpose. At the end of the day, there's nothing. And so it's here that Solomon ends the chapter with the heaviness of a reality check. And so I hesitate to try and like fully right the wrong of all of the work that he's done because he'll actually do that later on in the book of Ecclesiastes. But for the sake of setting up our conversations for cabin time and for the future conversations that we'll have in here, I'm gonna give you like a little cheat sheet. How is it, and I'm finishing with this, how is it that we can find real meaning in life? How can we find real meaning in life? The way that we can find real purpose in our existence, write this down if you're taking notes, is by looking beyond the sun to the one who created it and the one who created you. It is by looking beyond the sun to the one who created it and the one who created you. The only solution to this purposeless life is a life lived with the purpose of knowing and loving and obeying the God who gave us this life to begin with. In other words, it is to fear God. 
It is to fear God. Now, that doesn't mean to be afraid of God. A friend of Hume Lake, Johnny Artavanis, many of you know who he is. Mean, he put it this way one time in his podcast. He said, what does it mean to fear God? To fear God is to have an awe of God inspired by the meditation on the character of God who made the heavens and the planets and he formed you. It's to think about his bigness. And this fear of God produces in us holiness or a life that is set apart to follow him well and obedience to how he wants us to live. This is the most important thing in your life for when you live a life where you fear God, it will then have meaning. Last story and then I'll pray. Uh, a couple months ago, my friends, they reached out to me and they were like, hey, we'd love to have you on a hiking trip. Would you come hike with us? And it was in um, some of the mountains over there in California. I don't know where they are. Uh, but they were like, hey, let's come hike. It's like a Bible thing. And so I remember sitting in my, or standing in my living room and just standing there like, hey, do I really want to go on this hiking trip? Now, this is going to happen when you turn 18, right? I'm standing there and I'm like, do I want to go on this hiking trip? And then I have to remind myself, I'm an adult, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have to say yes. And so I'm thinking, man, why would I go and exhaust myself physically in the woods on a hike when I have a fridge, a couch, a TV, and a PS5? You know what I mean? Like, I could just as easily go and just grind the battle pass for the Peter Griffin skin and just, like, worry about all that. Come on, somebody. And so I'm like, okay. And then the Lord kind of convicted my heart. And I was like, no, but I need to be there because there's probably people there that want to have conversations. And I want to make sure that I'm present in case like God wants to use me in that. So I'm like, all right, I'll go on this hike. And so I get here and immediately regret it because everybody's like walking along and they're doing just fine. And I'm gasping for air in the back. And, and we go, up the, it's like a five hour hike. A long story short, we get to the top and there's this enormous waterfall. Y'all, I'm talking about like the biggest waterfall I've ever seen in my life. And there's like this like rickety little like fence that's just kind of lining the edge of the waterfall to protect you from falling off. And uh, it's there. And so we're like, hey, let's just take a nap. We've been walking for a long time. Lay down. We go to bed. About 30 minutes. There's about eight of us dudes. We're just kind of laying on this rock. All of us are just exhausted. And then we wake up after like 20, 30 minutes to what, what is legitimately one of the scariest sounds that you'll ever hear. Oh, no. And so then we all look up at the same time. This guy's phone slowly falls off the cliff. And we all stand up. And we're not going to dive for this thing, right? It's a phone. But we all stand up and we kind of walk over to see what happened to it. And before we know it, like the phone just disappears and is consumed by the power of this waterfall. Now, we were not scared of the waterfall. But hear me, we respected its power and we felt small in its presence. What does it mean to fear God? It is to recognize that God, but the, but the Bible says of God that he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Bible says that he created the universe with the word of his power, that he upholds it with the word of his power. And so we come to God and we say, Lord, I can give you nothing because you own it all other than my openness to say, God, would you do something with my life? Would you make sense of this reality because it's all that I have? And then God in his kindness, when you posture yourself in that way, will save you. Friends, if you're, if you're striving to find meaning and purpose in life does not bring you to a relationship with God at the feet of Jesus like that, then your life is vanity. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
God, thank you that you are kind and good, that you would speak to us tonight. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we leave chapel tonight, would you take the words that were spoken, God, and do something incredible. Father, would you inspire conversations to happen that would lead them, lead your people, would lead those that you love to come into a fuller understanding of who you are and your great love for them. God, you wanna see these people come to know that their life does matter, but that begins with a relationship with you. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say.